HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own firsthand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12 episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain educate and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon follow the journey on heritage radio and subscribe on itunes stitcher or anywhere else you get your podcasts and don't forget to follow us on instagram at we are opening soon and at tillit nyc Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And today, we're taking a look at the kitchen. The kitchen and its evolution from a dreary workspace room of, to, style, to a room of style and convenience, the place where everyone ends up gathering. 
I'm sure most of you have seen movies or TV shows, think Downton Abbey, with the scullery or the bare basic prep kitchen, often in the basement. And then, as a modern flip side, I'm sure many of you have seen photos or films of the Space Age kitchen of the 50s and 60s, as portrayed in the cartoon show The Jetsons. Or you've remembered it in all those vintage appliance ads, which sort of pop up every so often, Mad Men style, to illustrate and even sometimes mock the era. And then there are all those familiar household brands like Formica, Pyrex, KitchenAid, and Frigidaire. Just think, refrigerators and dishwashers? Wow. This was all part of a leap in technology of the post-World War II era, which was applied to consumers' practical use specifically in the kitchen, and my guest today has documented that movement in her new book. Sarah Archer is a writer and curator who specializes in design and material culture, specifically mid-century culture. She contributes to Slate, The Atlantic, Architectural Digest, and NewYorker.com. Her new book is Mid-Century Kitchen, America's Favorite Room from from Workspace to Dream Space, 1940s to 1970s. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. The title, the full title of your book, we're just going to call yeah. it The Mid-Century Kitchen. But that, for the, short, yeah. <laughs> the full title really says a lot. So much is packed yeah. into that title from the, from, the era, from the time period, 1940s. You can even go back to the 1920s, really. 1920s to the 1970s. And workspace to dream space. Wow. Describe, I mean, and I say 1920s because a lot of this, so, I mean, some of the technology, some technology started in the 20s, or at it least did, in the thought, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, describe well, to us how far we've come. It, incredibly far. <clears throat> and I think it's sort of, all of the, any design that you encounter that seems really innovative from kind of circa World War One, in some sense was kind of thwarted by the two world wars and the Great Depression. So there were things like refrigerators existed in the 1920s, and there are lots of, like, super glam 1920s kind of um, ads that feature people kind of who look like they're at a very glamorous cocktail party standing next to, like, a GE monitor top refrigerator (laughs) to kind of show (laughs) how it was, like, the latest chic thing, and it was almost like having an extra servant who didn't, you know, uh, you know, didn't interrupt the dinner party. Um, But not many people had those appliances back then. And it's for a couple of reasons, like anything from, um, you know, certain typefaces that were popular in the teens and twenties to clothing, you know, sort of, um, deconstructed modern clothing didn't really take hold until decades later. And it's Mm. partly because, um, consumerism was halted by the world wars and the depression. So lots of the technology that we think of is quote unquote post-war, because that was really the time period when, Tens of millions of people suddenly had, um, you know, fully outfitted suburban kitchens with a refrigerator and a dishwasher and a gas range, um, you know, may, may not have had that 20 years earlier, even though it was available. That's true. And we're not even, I mean, you know, when you think about it, we're not even referring totally to technology. Think about things like countertops and cabinets. I mean, there, were no right. su- there was no such thing, right? There was the work, the big old work table. It was a big work table. That's the thing that is so mind-blowing, to look at a lot of these photographs that um, were documented either by people like, um, you know, Lewis Hine, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of documenting tenements, or um, even WPA photographs in the 1930s of farmhouse kitchens, like, as recently as, you know, less than 100 years ago. The kitchen, as we think of it, as a kind of standard 
type of a room that has all the kind of expected appliances, whether it's you know a $500 stove from Home Depot or a $30,000 stove from La Cornu or something in between, um, is a relatively recent idea. And that's kind of mind-blowing when you consider how you know important the kitchen is to daily life. But essentially, before the mid-20th century, often what you would find were kitchens in kind of great houses, great estates, as mentioned down Abbey, um, would were kind of workspaces for staff. And they right. weren't a place where you would hang out and, you know, kind of do your homework after school or make a cup of tea. It was almost like the garage or basement. It was just this kind of functional workspace in the home versus um, a one-room apartment in a city or a one one or two-room farmhouse. You might have a cast iron stove as the only appliance um, and then have, um, you know, kind of the living space kind of nestled around that kitchen apparatus. So it wasn't sort of like the kitchen has always been a standard type of room. It really has evolved quite a bit since that right, time period. Right. Well, what, um, what, to what technologies do you really devote this, this major shift? You mentioned refrigeration, and for sure, that was a gigantic um, technological advance for people in the kitchen. Um, but what else, what, what other things would you mention on that, along that line? municipal water and gas lines and electricity. Running water, folks. (laughs) Running water. It's like, you know, we take it for granted, but it's like before those exist, um, you know, having kind of a modern hygienic kitchen was impossible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, having electricity paves the way for refrigeration, having gas lines paves the way for gas stoves, which are, you know, suddenly then you don't have to shovel coal into a cast iron stove every time you want to boil the kettle, every time somebody wants to take a shower or bath, you know, every (laughs) time uh, you want to cook something. So that becomes a major leap forward in convenience and safety. Um, And refrigeration, too, kind of completely transforms over decades how people shopped. Um, Instead of having to shop for produce or, or food every day, um, you can kind of do your shopping for the week and sort of, you know, plan out your menu as you go. That's right. I was going to mention that the the, the impact that that has and all these things have on on food and how food is delivered to the home. I mean, it's it's just it's really pretty phenomenal. Uh, in the twenties, before all this started, though, there there was quite an innovative. Um, uh, let me say invention, <laughs> but the Frankfurt mm-hmm. Kitchen is what I'm referring to, and yeah. it was very little, you know, not very well known here. Uh, it was by a German, developed by a German woman, first German architect, right? Um, uh, in Austria, yeah, in first Austria, right? To qualify as an architect in Austria, right? Oh, in Austria, right? And uh, but the uh, Museum of Modern Art had a wonderful display. It was on the whole on on the war, World War II um, efforts and supporting efforts and the boom of technology around both world wars, as you mentioned. But describe that Frankfurt kitchen for us. It was supposed to be like the ultimate model in efficiency. Yes. And it represented a huge leap forward for uh, working class and middle class um, families and women in particular. It was part of this sort of utopian um, urban project called New Frankfurt that was being designed by um, uh, Max Ernst in Austria after the war. And Ernst May, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I say, boy, he did, he did that too. Um, <laughs> he, did, he was busy 
crazy. Um, And there was this idea that it was kind of like this, you know, there's this horrible destruction in the wake of World War I, but it's also a chance to rebuild better and to give working people access to green space and sunlight and amenities like childcare and, you know, public parks. And the kitchen design, the sort of standard kitchen design was part of that. And she did something that was unusual for a middle-class dwelling. I mentioned there had been, you know, kind of staff kitchens in great houses and then kind of just kitchens that were kind of like occupying the entire living space in more humble kinds of housing. Um, Schutzlachowski moved the kitchen into kind of a separate room that was relatively small. And she studied the work of um, an American home economist named Christine Frederick, who Mm -hmm. did these wonderful illustrations of um, kind of footpaths motion studies in kitchens. She she herself also studied the work of um, an engineer named Frederick Taylor, who had worked with Bethlehem Steel and lots of other big companies kind of during the Gilded Age as a consultant, sort of doing motion studies and figuring out, you know, the fewest number of steps necessary to do a particular task and where, um, you know, what was the ideal position for a particular tool and that kind of thing to Mm -hmm. make, make the most of factory layout. Christine Frederick applied these ideas to the kitchen. So the kitchen was a, like a new sort of factory that made, you know, food and domesticity, right. <laughs> you know, made everybody happy. An efficiency um, mode. <laughs> it, it was efficiency. And she and uh, Shushlahovsky, for her part, studied that and made this very kind of compact kitchen space that required relatively few steps. There was rational storage that almost looks like it comes straight out of Catherine Beaker's, you know, 1869 treatise on home economy. There were lots of neat little drawers, little bins for things like rice and flour, Um, easy to clean surfaces because this was a moment when hygiene was starting to be well understood, term Mm -hmm. theory. It was a real kind of sense of like, we need to keep things separate, wash our hands, make sure that there's a place for things to be set aside and not be cross-contaminated if you're working with raw, you know, raw chicken or what have you. Um, Color, there's lots of, you know, uh, lovely bright blue and um, there's kind of different versions of it, but there's a a really nice version at the museum in Austria that's kind of blue and and orange Hmm. um, and along with white. And um, it didn't have a refrigerator. So that was the one thing that it didn't have. But apart from that, it has a remarkable similarity to the kitchens that we basically all have now. That, you know, there's a certain amount of storage, there's compact workspace, everything sort of has its place, and it's easy, and above all, it's easy to clean. Right. Um, the, I, one, I, the one I saw, I saw the one at uh, the Museum of Modern Art. At MoMA, yep. yeah. And what struck me, it's not something that I would feel comfortable working in. As you say, it was very, everything was small, very efficient, yep. you know, and, and you didn't really have to waste any motion to get from one one section to the other. What I was re- what, what remarked what I was remarking on um, to someone when I saw it was the chair. There was always a mm-hmm. place to sit, which is something that's uh, that we should I think adopt once again. Um, oh we yeah, stand and too I much. actually it's funny my, that was sort of a feature of the kitchen I had uh, growing up. We, my parents uh, and still have um, had you know a relatively compact Manhattan kitchen that had mm-hmm. you know sort of just enough counter space but there was always a stool so you could kind of perch and hang out in there right. which i always loved and that it wasn't part of the kitchen design it was just something that they yeah. did but i mean this was, um, hers was really part of the design where you sat right, you sat really and peeled in. potatoes right into a, a right. garbage chute you know exactly yeah, so everything has its place. Right. And the, the critique of that that's interesting is that the, sort of in the 70s, looking back on it, um, feminist architectural historians would say, well, that really 
isolates women. Uh-huh. So it's sort of, it, it sends the message that you're the only one who belongs in here and there's sort of nobody else, uh, you know, is meant to be quote unquote helping. Um, so it, it definitely, it was, it, it, it was a big innovation, but also kind of had its limitations too. Well, and well, as, as did a few others, which as we go forward, we can see because then we, then we move forward. Okay. Another war came about and, and then the big boom, um, the post-war boom occurred and uh, that actually, that you even indicated in your book and so many wonderful archival advertisements, photographs from the old advertisements. I just, I love them. But you even remarked that after this whole post-boom movement, you know, this feeling of optimism represented mm-hmm. by all the pastel colors. Kind mm-hmm. of descriptors of the era, wouldn't you say? I mean, absolutely, yeah. It's and it's kind of childlike, and I think yeah. um, it's interesting too because one of the things that I've noticed a lot of people are surprised to hear that there was a really strong connection between kitchen appliances and the auto industry <laughs> during this period. There was, um, you know, Frigidaire was owned by General Motors, so if uh-huh. you went to Motorama to see all the new kind of uh, the latest greatest cars you might also see a model kitchen. And there may also have been, you know, designers. There was a group of female designers known as the Damsels in Design who were in the late 50s um, working on things like sort of adding elements like cup holders and makeup mirrors to cars that executives thought would would appeal to this new class of consumer, you know, the middle-class household. Right. And so there was enormous crossover <clears throat> between those two things. And the pastel colors were... Kind of, to me, they really symbolize the sense that as women were kind of coming off the assembly line and coming back into the home after the war, there was a real sense of discouraging women from pursuing work outside the home because that was, you know, we have to have those jobs for the guys who are coming back. And there's a sense almost that the home becomes like a, a new version of the Victorian cocoon that's separate from the kind of the big bad world. And all of those pastel colors are... I mean, I think to, to our perspective, they look sort of childlike, like you would decorate a child's bedroom and, you know, pale yellow and, uh, you know, and so all of these appliances and countertops and, uh, you know, all these new materials like Formica um, give you the sense that it's kind of a stylish room that is not really kind of ready for prime time in a sense. Like it's really, it's, it's very, you know, do, kind of domestic and cozy and it's for women and kids. It's not for guys. Yeah. And transitory too. I mean, you, you figure yeah. something that colored can't have lasting power, right? Staying power. Right, that's, exactly. It's, you know, yeah, but then, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah uh, but of course, for myself, being a child of that era, I mean, I remember too the you know the pale pink Thunderbird that looked like a lot of the kitchen appliances that were pale <laughs> yeah, exactly. pink. I mean, you know, yes, indeed. There's a lot of connection between the automotive industry and those and those modern kitchens. It's wild, you know? isn't it? Yeah, yeah really. So like something is going to take off. Um, and yet, you know, with all so all these advancements took place, and um, and I encourage people if you see if, to order the book, see the book, and look at these. Um, go to your bookstore and, and look through. If you don't remember the ads, and or don't remember yeah. the series Mad Men, which was just yesterday, it still is on right. reruns. Um, it was it's it was really quite a dramatic shift from where we once were. Well, you know the. Mm-hmm. Even in, you know, and when things started to change with a little bit of refrigeration and maybe a cook stove, I mean, people were still working out of what's called the Hoosier cabinet, right? Yeah, the Hoosier cabinet, which is actually, and they've become kind of collectible because some of them oh, are yeah. really lovely objects, like as, as just as pieces of furniture. But the Hoosier cabinet really comes out of 
it's kind of a, a modified baker's cabinet, old-fashioned baker's cabinet. Mm-hmm. They were really popular from sort of circa 1880 through um, kind of the turn of the 20th century, and they had um, elements that were actually not unlike the Frankfurt kitchen. They had lots of bins, and you could kind of sit, you know store your flour in there. And I think what that tells you is that it's an era when people are buying things kind of in bulk and not in the kind of the way that we're used to where you buy kind of a package of, you know, whatever brand, flour or sugar or what have you. And it's kind of, um, you have these quantities of ingredients because you're making most things from scratch because there isn't just sort of bread on the shelf that stays on the shelf um, and spices and all that kind of stuff. And also, um, a lot of them were made with enamel surfaces because that was more hygienic. So it's sort of around the time of World War One. there's this big increase in interest in, it's also the Spanish flu, um, you know, being able to keep things really clean. Right. So inorganic materials like enamel and glass are suddenly really popular again. And if you look at kitchens, especially into the 20s, they have, that's kind of bef- right before the craze for color really comes in. And there's this moment when kitchens almost kind of look like hospitals and they're, mm-hmm. everything is white and there's, you know, all of these like very clean, austere surfaces like you could, you know, do surgery in there if you really had to. Um, And then the 30s and 40s come along and there's this kind of increasing interest in kind of the use of color as a marketing tool and, you know, kind of having fashion colors in your kitchen. But it, yeah, so the Hoosier cabinet really is kind of a transitional object almost between kind of um, the old-fashioned Victorian kitchen or kitchen of even centuries before that where it was just some furniture in a room with a heat source table, right. you know, not not part of a suite, but just kind of whatever you had. Well, and interesting, not even, I mean, eat-in kitchens were, that was it, that was unheard of as well. And that, you know, right. became the era of the right. eat-in kitchen. There was always a table and chairs for a family of, the perfect family of four or six or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not surprising to see the influence of, of uh, Christine Fredericks, you know, with home economics and and uh, and Taylorism being the the fact that a kitchen is basically a factory in a way. You know, yeah, a, you've got yeah. to have that efficiency and and the motion. And not surprising, you know, that whole um, efficient triangle that they developed for it was a triangle that they developed. You know, to save space for the yeah. kitchen. So you go yeah. from what was it? The, the work triangle, right? Yep. The work triangle. Minimum steps from the stove to the refrigerator to the sink. You know, it still applies today when planning kitchens. Yeah. It's amazing that absolutely. That it's amazing. Basically, what they what they found themselves doing were kind of mapping out how people would use these new technologies because it's kind of we you know the idea of sort of home economics has become kind of you know at, at best passe and at most you know kind of a joke that the idea that you would devote like real scientific study to the idea of, you know, baking a cake or something. It seems kind of silly to us, but it seems silly in a way because it was so pervasive and so successful. Like uh-huh. the, the fact that somebody actually kind of mapped this out and thought of it um, has, you know, made it so that these rooms, which were full of all these new resources, like running water and appliances, it's like how, you know, this is a complete radical change. It's almost the equivalent in magnitude to the way that computers have changed our lives and the way That's that right. our living spaces and, the you know, the way that we 
you know, have to now be told to look where we're going when we walk down the street because, you know, we have these new devices. Um, it, it was a technology that really disrupted how people lived, and it needed to be, kind of, somebody needed to spell it out, right. you know, to kind of do that research and, and map it out for people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, it's interesting. The technology was was so desired, and this whole, the whole push for science and technology, I mean, our whole, the whole school oh. education curriculum changed around that time when once the Russians put a, um, you know, Sputnik into space, the whole hour here in America, our, our um, curriculum changed and science was the major focus. So much so that this technology and that particularly the technology of the kitchen was politicized uh, when Nixon arranged a meeting with Khrushchev and exchanged a sort of a, a science fair, if you will. Can you tell us about that? That was an amazing moment, and it was the, the amazing thing too is that it was actually not planned. It, it, they ended up talking in front of um, the model kitchen display, which had been designed by Whirlpool, at um, the 1959 American Exposition in Moscow. And they did a series of there was there were some in New York too. They did these kind of exchange expositions that weren't exactly World Fairs, but kind of borrowed. Um, a kind of display strategy from the idea of a World's Fair where you'd have model homes and fashion shows and stuff like that. And they ended up having this argument, which is now known as the kitchen debate, um, in front of this uh, model kitchen, which was described as a typical kind of kitchen that a, sort of an ordinary American worker and family could afford. And it was something <laughs> in, in the dollars of that time, something like maybe, you know, a house cost $18,000 or whatever. And, uh, you know, you could afford that on a salary of whatever was, was average back then. Um, and it had, uh, you know, washer dryer and, and all the sort of latest, greatest um, appliances. And they get into this argument because essentially Khrushchev says like, well, we don't, you know, force our women to, you know, to be, you know, domestic slaves like that. We have, you know, th this idea that, and to some extent, this is this is a little bit later in the decades. If you actually have been watching the series Chernobyl on HBO, there's there were there were a great many women in the Soviet Union who studied math and science and ended up working in medicine and physics and all sorts of things. There was a real push for what we call STEM um, right. among women, and that right. was actually quite unusual, more so than here. Right. Um, so there's this sort of interesting idea that. Um, you know, Nixon, of all people, is kind of espousing how great this technology is, and then Khrushchev is offering what we might think of as like a feminist critique of, you know, gender essentialism, like, you know, Ooh, not that, just and that, and that leads me to uh, the nexus, and this was 1959, remember, so, that, you know, yeah, these, and a lot of, and a lot of the things were actually in that model kitchen were sort of uh, fake. I mean, they weren't really working. I mean, they, they had to sort of be... Right, the Whirlpool display <laughs> kitchen was kind of a piece of stagecraft in some right, ways. There was right. this kind of remote-controlled, um, amazing, like what we would call a Roomba, essentially, like a remote vacuum that looked, that had, sort of looked like a part of a, a 1950s car. Like it has, it's kind of streamlined and has, you know, fins and it's, it's kind of an ochre color, yellow ochre. And it presaged the modern Roomba. It was supposed to work like that. It didn't actually work automatically the way they do now, the way our Roombas do now. So it had to be operated remotely by a, a sort of a radio control from behind a scrim. So there was a guy kind of behind the kitchen kind of, you know, operating it. And there was supposed to be this kind of command center um, kind of proto-computer where women could, you know, keep track of their expenses and, you know, organize recipes and make shopping lists and that kind of stuff. Also a little bit of stagecraft. Right, so it's, right. the, the appliances <laughs> that Whirlpool was selling at the time, of course, worked. But all these other kind of like 
it was kind of an aspirational kitchen of tomorrow and speaks to this desire during this time period for um, sort of kitchens of the future. There was this obsession with, you know, what will, you know, we, we had in the last 30 years, all these new appliances and all these new innovations, you know, what will come next as though the next 30 years would bring, you know, every, every bit of innovation that the previous decades had. And of course they didn't because essentially once you've got a stove and a dishwasher and a fridge, like you're kind of set. Yeah, right? like what else do you need, right? More counter space, right? More counter space, more different it. colors. Yeah. And so then you start getting into kind of like, all right, the technology kind of is what it is, but now you can do, you can, you know, design your own refrigerator with, you know, interchangeable uh, door colors or, you know, it's it, kind of different countertop colors or, different styles, and that becomes the focus of innovation right. once the technology becomes kind of standardized. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the uh, effects and impacts of this innovation and this technology, too, when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Sushi Master, the new book by Nick Sakagami. Sushi Master is an expert guide to sourcing, making, and enjoying sushi at home. As the only person outside of Japan to earn the designation Osakana Meister, Nick Sakagami introduces the fundamentals of sushi, starting with the fish. Photography from Tokyo's Tsukiji Fish Market offers an inside look at where most of our tuna comes from. And a deep dive into the tools, techniques, and etiquette of sushi ensure you'll never look at a California roll the same way again. Sushi Master comes out on June 4th, 2019. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Sarah Archer, and she has a wonderful new book just out called The Mid-Century Kitchen. And I have to admit, the mid-century modern period is is uh, probably one of my favorite design periods. It's it's really terrific. It's kind of hard to resist. Yeah, it really (laughs) is. Um, And we were talking earlier about... um, Khrushchev saying, well, we don't force our women to you know, stay in the kitchen. They're doing other things, too. You know, it's, it, all, of these, all of these technological advances, not all of them. I mean, they were, they were wonderful. Let's don't let's deny that. But they were supposedly supposed to make things more convenient. And there were other products coming along, too, like, you know, mix masters, box mixes, TV dinners, all kinds of things. It was supposed to make life uh, easier for women. But in fact... In a certain way, it kind of tied them even more so to the kitchen. It, it is. And what you're identifying is this um, really interesting confluence of two different impulses that were um, shaping consumerism and gender politics during the 20th right. century. One is that starting in the late 1920s, um, ad men were keenly aware, especially during the Depression, that durable goods, in a sense, had to be turned into throwaway goods in order to keep the economy humming along. Mm-hmm. So instead of, like, you would maybe buy a new razor every three months or six months, you know, it's like we have to start training consumers to think of things like stoves or cars as in the context of, like, annual styling. Like, we have to, you know, start start think, getting them to think of them as things that you sort of use up and then find a new one. 
um, to train people to be to be robust consumers so that we can kind of keep all of this going. And in the post-war period, when women are decidedly supposed to be in the home, you have, on the one hand, this impulse on the part of consumer of, or of corporations saying, this device is going to make your life easier and it's really, really great. But on the other hand, it can't be too good because you need to be devoted to housework, right? <laughs> so it can't eliminate the work. It just has to make it so that it's kind of like not a big deal and you can like wear pearls and then go play tennis so that's oh, like, yes. they're not going to take over <laughs> your life. So it's, it keeps – advertisers had to really almost kind of walk a, a tightrope of making it seem as though all these devices would – you know, kind of implicitly like improve your sex life or kind of, you know, make your husband happier because you won't be working so hard or make your children, you know, smarter and healthier um, because you have all this extra time to kind of spend with them. Um, but never does it imply that like, well, all of this is taken care of. So you can like go back to grad school and kind of do your own thing. Exactly. Yeah. If anyone who's read uh, Laura Shapiro's great, something from the oven oh, knows that, yeah, yes, that yeah, well, you have a box mix, uh, cake mix yeah. and you have a, a mix master. So what does that tell us? We should be baking more. I mean, so there we are exactly. you know, tied to the counter. Uh, speaking of box mixes and TV dinners, there were, of course, then there was Pyrex, and you talk a lot about that. And there was something that then maybe attempted to give women a bit of freedom, if you will, or their own pin money, as they called it. And that was Tupperware. Tupperware, yeah. yeah. Or just, well, let's talk about, I mean, there's plastic in general. I mean, that was a brand new thing, too. But Yes. That was really kind of, yeah, plastic appears in, Tupperware is one of the most visible forms of it, but it was, right. it was used in, um, you know, even kind of the rubber that um, kind of makes the seal of your dishwasher, like all the, those sort of, or the seal of the refrigerator, all of those were sort of post-World War II um, innovations in terms of incorporating them into consumer products, which made them more efficient. And But there's also that smell, like that plasticky smell right. that we all are very used to because we live in the 21st century and it's everywhere. But, it, you know, that, that smell when you sort of unfold like a new shower curtain liner that, you know, which like is not great for you to inhale, um, that was totally alien to people in the 40s and 50s. It's, it was completely new and it was sort of um, alarming. And, you know, people, consumers didn't love Tupperware at first because on the, it was sort of like, oh, what is that? Like, mm. that's kind of, you know, you're not used to that in the kitchen. You're used to like glass mixing bowls, right? Or ceramics or something inorganic that kind of doesn't, um, you know, that's not kind of rigid and yet floppy and kind of pink and green and yellow and, and in these sort of weird colors and has this unusual smell. So one of the reasons that the Tupperware party was introduced was to get women used to sort of seeing and using Tupperware in somebody's house to sort of see how they would use it themselves and get used to it. And it became this kind of social thing. So it was sort of like um, a little bit like the Avon of that era. Right. Um, there were these, um, you know, kind of local saleswomen who would sort of have parties and sell Tupperware. And that was kind of your extra, as you say, pin money. It was sort of, you know, not the kind of money that could support a whole family, but, um, you know, made it worth your while to kind of incorporate that into your routine. All right. Well, you mentioned earlier to the, um, uh, the pearls and, and, uh, and heels. I love all those pictures in those old ads for the appliances and all the women doing housework vacuuming in their high heels oh, and beautiful shirtwaist dresses in pastel colors to match the appliances right (laughs) and their pearls like that's what women wore when they were at home yeah uh right they you didn't have to get your hands too dirty but it also spoke to 
to something else and and a carryover from okay all these innovative pieces of equipment these appliances um, you were in this modernized kitchen so that newness lent a bit of sophistication to the room the mm-hmm. kitchen as well and this sophistication led to an interest in different cuisines definitely and yeah I, there yeah. was absolutely a sense that between recipe books and magazines and kind of post-war interest in different kinds of foods and um, TV shows like um, The French Chef with Julia Child. Mm-hmm. And the, the kitchen was then suddenly kind of like a, almost like a command center where you could explore the world without leaving your, your, your home. And, you know, you had the, this kind of the new Eden kitchen where you would you could entertain and right. it wasn't kind of a dingy workspace but rather kind of a, a cool looking, you know, sort of decorated space where you could invite people over. And um, these kind of semi international or domesticated crazes like fondue or hors d'oeuvres that were kind of supposedly uh, based on South Pacific cuisine, which was largely invented but was nevertheless very popular during the tiki craze. Um, all sorts of things like that, and even sort of experimenting with, you know, Asian cooking. And, um, you know, speaks to kind of a radical shift in how people were shopping, too, because really this was, I think, back to, like, what my mother describes growing up um, in the 40s and 50s, and that they didn't have black pepper in the house. Like, literally, that was sort of like a spice too far. (laughs) Or it was, you know, sort of like Irish Catholic, like, meat and meat and potatoes and that was it was just spices were not part of the routine and it's things that we think of nowadays we have you know you can google uh, you know how to make your own kimchi and people are doing all this you know kind of really exploring the world right culinarily but it was mediated in a way through magazines and um you know, you know, kind of uh, novelty cookbooks about like food from Hawaii or food from the Orient or what right. have you, and people were really, really gravitated to that. Right, and I mean, it became—I mean, it really came about, as you said. I mean, kid, the kitchen became a marketable item. I mean, magazines, cookbooks, as you mentioned, um, all of these things that led people to to do a little exploring and experimenting. As long as you're stuck in the kitchen, you might as well make it fun. Right? Might as well, and that's <laughs> exactly well. it. It's basically like. Here you are, and things have become, quote-unquote, easier for you. Mm-hmm. So while you're there, you know, he, here are all the kind of nifty ways that you can kind of enrich your family's life or entertain in this, you know, kind of exotic way. And I think there was almost a sense that you can kind of like, here's, you know, here's a new thing that you can you can serve, and people have never seen this before. That's right. You know, Polynesian, some sort of invented Polynesian hors d'oeuvre or okay. what have you. Um to kind of um, give people a sense of worldliness and culture. And that's, you know, that's kind of a long-held human need. People were going to World Fairs 100 years earlier because you could see exotic things and, um, you know, ceramics and fans and, uh, you know, from across the world. That's always been a human curiosity. So that's I think right. that's sort of having that enter the kitchen was kind of a logical next step. Right. And the kitchen became... Um a showpiece in its own right. And as I said at the top of the show, you know, kitchen is where everyone ends up hanging out anyway, whether you have a little kitchen or a big kitchen. But these were these kitchens were really designed for people to gather. You know, there was often a, a countertop that one could gather behind while, the, presumably, the woman was doing the work on the other side of it, you know. Um, or you know, dishing out hors d'oeuvres or something. There was it was you know, it was pretty with all the colors. It was a place where you would welcome people and want to show off your new fancy kitchen. 
And I got to tell you, you take a look at All some of, of these. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, you know, my thought when I'm, as I was looking at um, a lot of the photographs in your book, I was saying, oh, I would love to have any one of those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> they look pretty cool to me. But, and, and, that, and that brings me to something that you wrote in, that, in the beginning of the book, which I feel is a perfect end, and, and that is that, you know, I mean, except for maybe the microwave, very little has changed. Yeah, right? that's the really wild thing. It's like if you look at sort of what, what people actually use, putting aside, um, you know, we all know somebody who has like one of those seltzer makers or a sous vide or, you know, there's all sorts of different batches. Of course, there are microwaves, which didn't become widespread until the 1980s. But apart from that, essentially, like, if you lived long enough to have experienced, you know, coal stoves and no running water and all of that, and then in the post-war era got yourself like a 1950s, you know, kitted out kitchen... That was life changing, and right. we haven't really had a change like that since. No. You know, in the seventy years since then, it's basically like different colors. Maybe now, like people are really into soapstone, you know, it, as countertops. But basically, um, the, the standard kitchen cabinet and counter heights, the dimensions, um, the way that we store food, how we cook, um, the ingredients we stock, um, how, you know what dimensions a refrigerator needs to have and what features it needs to have. You know, there are certainly newfangled things like refrigerator doors that you can see through, you know, certain smart refrigerators. But (laughs) we have not gotten to the point of like the robot made, right? right? Like that sort of Jetsons moment where, and it's in a funny way, after all these decades in the middle of the century where there was a real focus on the kitchen of the future, um, people are also really looking to the past, like looking at, you know, sort of trying to avoid plastic by kind of choosing things like metal or glass, um, fermenting things on their own, you know, doing all the kind of food prep stuff that our great grandparents did (laughs) um, as though it's like this cool new thing (laughs) that they've discovered. But there's this kind of longing to get back to something a little, um, a little less, Newfangled, yes. You know, and more, I think you're more right. Kind of tried and true. Yeah, you're right. And and then we look to say, well, well, what? So where where are we going next? I think you had mentioned something earlier, and that's it's more about now. The innovations we're seeing is how we procure our food, where we get it. I mean, the delivery services. You know, pick up a phone. Yeah, you know, sure. go to your computer and and order up. Uh, you know, all your your goods for the week and there it is on your doorstep. Well, and that's been, that's kind of the big change. I mean, if things like having running water and having a gas stove were kind of the big sea changes of let's say the twenties and thirties, like for our lifetime, it's really been the digital revolution and the, the way in which you can get delivered absolutely anything that you need, find any recipe, any, anywhere in the world from your phone, you know, all the things we do in the kitchen are now mediated by having access to the internet. And that is a huge change and having, um, you know, meal kits mean that you don't have to worry about kind of shopping for the week and having things go bad and wasting food. And like that's, if it works for you, I think meal kits are a great thing. Um, and also a real awareness and focus on where your food is coming from. So in right. a sense, it's sort of less about the appliances um, and more about kind of, you know, oh, should I join a CSA or can I go, you know, where's my mm-hmm. nearest green market or, you know, how, how do I... Uh, plan, you know, sort of meal plan for the week so I make sure everything is, is fresh when I need it and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that those are almost sort of like very old concerns 
you know, kind of where your food is coming from and how to keep it. It's just, you know, almost like we've gone back in time a hundred years, but I think it speaks to a desire for people to eat um, healthfully and to be mindful of, you know, who's growing it and how it's being grown and where it's coming from. Excellent. So you can have your newfangled kitchen. And by the way, men know how to use those appliances now too. (laughs) They sure do. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and, and, not that it makes the food any different, but I think certainly our food has gotten a lot better as far as what comes out of the yeah. kitchen, definitely. I think so, too. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Well, yeah. Sarah, I appreciate your having put this book together because, as I say, it's it's a wonderful um, era, design era, and it was such a such a shift for for us here in America and, and women in particular. You have to say, yes, we were stuck in the kitchen, yep, but absolutely. hey, at least it made it a little easier, you know. And I think it's a wonderful book, and it's called again, "The Mid Century Kitchen" by Sarah Archer. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.